Blog Talk Radio. I'm Laura Mize, Pediatric Speech-Language Pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I have been away for about a month. I can't believe it's been a month since I've done a podcast. But boy, are things happening around here at teachmetotalk.com, and I want to talk to you about a couple of those before we get to today's topic. First of all, have you seen the upgrade in my website, teachmetotalk.com. It is beautiful and everything I wanted and all of those earlier issues that I think I mentioned last time I did a podcast with the formatting problems. I had about, oh, 50 to 500 random question marks appearing in older posts that I'd written or actually anything before 2014. So that was very distressing and all of those some posts disappeared and we got most of them back and just all of the things that happen when you upgrade a site that hasn't been upgraded in a while every possibility that could go wrong kind of felt like it did (laughs) but all of those issues are resolved now and I am just thrilled with the look and how it's moving along I love that the comment section is working again although Folks have been a little reluctant to leave comments on the new site like they did on the old site before all of those kinds of issues started happening. So if you are on there and are reading an article and have something you'd like to add to discussion or a question you'd like to ask or anything that you want to say on there, please feel free to hit reply at the bottom of an article Post your little comment on there, and I will be more than happy to respond. Now, if you have a question that's a little more private, you want to keep it more confidential, you can also contact me directly through teachmetotalk.com by completing a contact form. Those forms are, or the button to get a form is at the bottom of every page. It's in a green little blip there, a little banner, and it says contact us. So you can always do that too, and I think that's a great way to uh, leave a question or comment, and again, something that you may not want to uh, be exposed. So feel free to do that. Let me direct your attention to another really important feature on the uh, newly upgraded site, and it's my free ebook. It's called A Parent's Guide to Understanding Speech Language Development. I've gotten so much good feedback uh, from this free little ebook. It's about 32, 34, 35 pages, something like that. Easy to read if you're a parent and you're just beginning to explore your child's communication delay. I highly, highly, highly recommend this book because it will reframe maybe how you think about speech language development. Maybe you're focused on just what your child says and you're not really thinking about how important understanding language is. Or maybe you don't even realize the other little issues that are contributing to your child not talking yet. And I think this this free ebook is one of the best things I've ever written for parents. And I get an email almost every day where someone is telling me how much they've enjoyed it. If you are a professional and you want to take a look at that, I'd love for you to do that too. You can always print it and give it to a parent if you don't feel like they are as technologically savvy and you don't want to recommend a website, 
Um, it's also, as a professional, will give you your talking point. So if you struggle with talking with parents about red flags, uh, especially with social engagement or with play or with receptive language, you can use the terminology there. You can use the way that I've written it because you'll know that that's something that I've found to be successful and you'll be able to take that information and then share it with parents. So again, I think it's a great, great, great resource that I want you to have if you're a parent or if you are a therapist like me, with families of toddlers with language delay. So you can sign up for that. It's in the big green banner. You can't miss it um, when you're looking at the website. And again, our site now is completely responsive. If you don't know what that means, if you're not a computer techie kind of person, that means that you can look at it with any kind of device, whether you have a tablet or um, your phone or your iPad, your laptop, your desk, any kind of device you would want to use. Uh, TeachMeToTalk.com is now supposed to be available on all of those devices. So take a look at that and then you'll find the free ebook right there in the middle and you'll hit the red subscribe button, you'll enter your email, and then you should get the ebook back pretty quickly. And then you'll also be signed up for any other um, new materials, offers, anything like that. I don't bombard uh, our list there, our subscription, our subscribers. You're not going to hear from me every two or three days. Thank goodness I'm on some list that People email me two or three times a day. I, I don't have time for that, first of all. <laughs> Secondly, again, I would never want to overload you with anything. So don't feel weird about signing up for that subscription list because, again, you'll just hear from me periodically. So I wanted to point that out. Another thing I'm going to make sure you know about is uh, my most popular therapy guide is now on DVD, and that's called Creating Verbal Routines. Therapy Guides are an online video that usually lasts about an hour, and the format for that is usually there's a little bit of lecture time. So if you like how I do Therapy Tip of the Week, there's a little bit of that at the beginning, and then I go on to show you toys or activities or, or whatever we would be using to support the topic of the Therapy Guide. With creating verbal routines, it's a little different with this video, which is now on DVD, it's a little bit of that, that discussion time at the beginning or that teaching time, and then I move on to show you therapy clips. So it's a really nice um, combination between Therapy Tip of the Week and any of the other DVDs that I've done. So if you're interested in this, and especially if you work with little guys that are on the autism spectrum or suspected to be or... Um, another good application for this would be kids who are just oh, almost at that point of becoming verbal and you just feel like they need a little jump start with that, creating verbal routines. Um, the information that you'll receive on that DVD is just excellent. And again, I highly recommend it. It's pretty cheap. And you can find out information about ordering that online at teachmetotalk.com. You can also get the online version if you don't want to wait for shipping for the DVD. And there's information about that on the post as well. All right, more little announcements, and then we'll get rolling with today's topic. My summer conference schedule is out. I'm going to be in Texas in three different cities. First of all, in San Antonio on June 18th and 19th, in Corpus Christi 
on June 20th and 21st with that event. We don't have any more seats for that event. And then on Houston on June 26th and 27th. So those dates in Texas. So if you are near there, can get there, come see me. I'll also be in Chicago, and those dates have been finalized. It's July 31st and August 1st, and we are out in Naperville, Warrenville, again, for those Chicago dates. Love that hotel, and they always give us such a warm welcome, so we're going back there. Let me also say um, we're looking at other dates for some Florida locations, possibly Atlanta, possibly Dallas. But here's why I'm going to tell you this. This is probably going to be the last year that I teach early speech language development, taking theory to the floor, and building verbal imitation in toddlers in a live event. So if you wanted to see either one of those courses live, get signed up, <laughs> book your airfare, play in your hotel rooms, because I'm writing some new courses that I'll roll out in 2015. Those courses are available on DVD, so if you feel like, gosh, I just can't make it to one of those locations, I, I just assume take that course at home in my pajamas. You can always get those courses on DVD, and they will be on DVD for the foreseeable future. But I'm probably not going to teach these current course, speech language development, taking theory to the floor, and building verbal imitation in toddlers past this year. So if you want to do it live, and again, it's always a fun, fun, fun day. It really kind of depends on the audience how fun it is. But I, I love live events, and I, I will, even though we're getting all this stuff on DVD, I hope to always continue to be able to speak to live audiences because that's just my dream come true, and I still can't believe I get to do it every time I'm in front of a live group. But those courses are about to be retired. Uh, from live events. So if you want to see that, get on com, get yourself signed up, and come see me in one of those locations. All right, moving right along to today's topic. We are finishing up a series that I started, gosh, was it in March? March or April, and it was called Be the Toy. And boy, did I get great responses from that. And we spent several weeks walking through some emails that – speech-language pathologist had sent where we looked at why using toys with a particular child, or actually it was more than one child, why toys didn't work at the very beginning of treatment for those kids. And I don't want to be repetitive. If you have not listened to those shows, gosh, if this is show 231, it would have been shows 228, 229, 230, and then today's the final series in that. Go back and listen to those shows because we had a speech pathologist who said that, that a child left her out. We had a speech pathologist who said once she got the toys out, the child was just overstimulated about an email where the child was all over the therapist and she felt, well, gosh, I don't know what to do and this makes me a little bit uncomfortable. So we walked through all kinds of scenarios for when this could be happening, when we don't really use toys with children. We walked through what to do in lieu of that with the nice beginning discussions of social games and why we would use social games and routines and what those things look like. I gave you my 10 to 15 go-to social games, the ones that I use with my little clients, the ones that have been most successful with me, the ones that I've found that parents learn best, and that was in show, I guess it was in show 229 maybe. 
So if you've not listened to those podcasts, if you've gotten a little bit behind, or if you're just finding the podcast now and you're thinking, gosh, I feel like I'm entering this conversation mid-sentence, I've missed some things, maybe it would be best if you stopped and went back and listened to show 228 and then move forward, this Be the Toy series. We're finishing this up today, and we're talking about this last little piece, and this is what I've gotten some emails about too. They said, Laura, I get that I'm supposed to play social games. I understand why I'm supposed to play those games. I understand how to do it. I've gotten better at implementing those things. I can teach parents how to do those games. We're getting some nice carryover. So how do you know when you're ready to move on? How do I know when I can bring the toys back into the session? How will I, you know, do, do I play social games forever? What what does that look like? How how long are those things supposed to last? So I sat down and developed some criteria for when I move on and how I know that I can start to include some really simple toys in with kind of intermixed with the social games that we're playing and how, how do I know that that's working and that's successful and that we can move on a little bit. Or how, when you can't bring those toys in, when you really should stick with working on that engagement piece and the, the social skills piece, how do you still think that that should be your primary focus? So I jotted down some things that I hope will be helpful for you as you're making these decisions about your little friends. And again, if you're not quite sure what I'm talking about, please back up and listen to those other shows to kind of get you up to speed so that this isn't as new as it should be as we're talking about it today. So how do you know when you're not ready to move on, when social skill treatment or working on interaction or engagement or whatever you want to call it, how do you know when social skill games should still be the focus? And remember, our title here was Be the Toy. So how do you know that you need to still keep being the toy without introducing any other object or usually there's another person there because we always want to involve moms and dads and caregivers and grandmothers and aunts and uncles and siblings or whoever's there in the therapy session, especially if we're doing home visits with our birth century population. We want to bring other people in. But how would we know that we don't really need to focus on toys yet? All right. Here's what I do. When I see that I disappear when a child is using another object, meaning a toy, or it could be something like an iPad or an app on a phone or a movie or anything like that, anytime I'm introducing that third point of attention or that third focus beyond me and beyond the kid, and if I immediately become invisible and the child doesn't pay attention to me anymore, I know that that child is really not ready for that because he has lost the ability to include another person in his world when he's doing this other activity or playing with a toy or or whatever the other object has to be. So if you're finding that's happening or you're noticing in your sessions when you're bringing out a toy and that happens then you need to ditch the toys and stay at that social game level for however long it takes (laughs) until the child really regularly learns to include you 
in whatever he's doing. Here's another thing. Here's a sign, another sign you're not ready to move on to include a toy. It would be when a kid gets really mad when work to stay included. Have you had that happen before? If you've worked for more than two weeks, you probably have seen it already. <laughs> Let's say you're using one of these toys I'm going to talk about later, like bubbles or like a cool ball toy or something. Let's say that you're doing that and the child isn't necessarily not including you, but he gets so mad if you do anything to assert yourself or to take a little bit of the lead or control in that play. Do you know what I mean by that? This is a kid who flips out when you want to hold the bubble stick. This might be a child who gets really, really mad if you have a ball and hammer toy and if you want to hold the hammer. And so these kids include you because they are mad, <laughs> but they're not really uh, choosing to let you stay a part of that game. You might not be disappearing because, again, you've placed yourself in a position for them to have to notice you, which is a really good strategy, by the way. But they're still a little bit too upset. Now, these aren't going to be the kids that will give you a little wah or a little push maybe or a little dirty look and still kind of go on about their way and let you play with them anyway, even though they're a little bit perturbed. These are the kids who become so intent on leaving them alone that when you're introducing the toy, you really messed up any opportunity for lots of learning to go on because they're, they're beside themselves. They are tantruming or they are out of control. And listen, guys, when a kid looks like he's out of control, he is. There's usually no going back. And sometimes our colleagues in physical therapy are sometimes OTs, but usually it's the PTs will say, well, it doesn't matter if I'm making him so mad because he needs this anyway and he's going to benefit from this exercise. All right, that's probably true if you're doing like passive range of motion things, if a PT is, you know, doing some little exercises or movement or whatever they do with arms and legs and all that stuff. That's not the, tr the same with communication and with cognition. We have to have their little brains in a receptive state so that they can continue to interact with us and continue to learn and think and hopefully talk and if they and process what's going on. And just think about yourself. When you are mad, when you are just fit to be tied with something that's happened that's really been upsetting to you, how easily can somebody reason with you or how how easily do you flip the switch to become rational now some of us do that because we're finally mature enough <laughs> we've learned that we can switch that that on and off pretty easily and we can say get a hold of yourself you're okay but let's just say you're fighting mad I mean you are just ballistic that's how our little friends are when they're having a tantrum I mean they really when we stay out of control they are they can't bring themselves purposefully under control now that's part of maturity that's certainly something we want them to learn how to do but it's pretty unrealistic for us to take little toddlers with developmental delays and expect that they would be able to immediately know how to self-regulate and how to self-calm and again we need to give them opportunities to develop this and learn those skills but in the heat of the moment they're not always going to be able to learn when we continue to push their buttons and make them mad. Do you know what I mean by that? So usually 
that kind of behavior, if it's happening every time I try to introduce a new toy, or it might not matter what it is, maybe we start with bubbles and the child gets so mad that I want to hold the stick and, and participate in that a little bit. And so we kind of put that away and we move on, and then he gets mad at the next thing, and then I, I try to do maybe some balloons with him, and he he does not want me to hold the balloon. Or we try to move on and do another kind of toy, and he gets really mad about that. That's when I know, hey, I can't have toys anymore. Yes, I need to teach him how to play. Yes, he needs some, some of those skills. Yes, we've got to work on fine motor and cognition and no, 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 whatever else we're working on. But if the introduction of the toy and, and you insisting that you play with him makes him lose it, you, you can't do it. You really have to back up to those social games. And hopefully you've listened to the shows before now and, you, again, you know why to do it, you know how to do it. And so you're caught up and you're realizing, gosh, he's still not ready. He's not developmentally at the point where communication can be our focus yet with another object. We've got to spend some more time here. We've got to really build that foundation so that he will be ready to move on and he's ready to let me be a part of whatever he wants to do without completely falling apart. And so if you're still having lots of difficulty with that, if you're still feeling like you're fighting with a child entire session, or or let's just say it may not even be um, a real kid who who's not really aggressive. It might be a kid who, when you want to play, he leaves you out, but he's not really nasty about it or mean about it or, you know, overly aggressive. He's not hitting. He's not tantruming. He's not kicking. He just kind of checks out. When you decide you want to play the bubbles, he moves on to something else. And then you move over to help him play with that, and he moves on to something else. And then you move on to do the next thing, and he moves on to something else. With kids like this, it's really, really difficult to again, engage their attention because they always think, well, if you're going to insist that you do it with me, I still don't know how to interact well enough with other people to be able to include you in this, and I'm still needing to ignore you or avoid you or leave you out for whatever reason. And again, it could be that he's overstimulated by your presence. It could be um, that he doesn't register you at all, that you haven't been important enough or big enough for him to know he should include you. That's how different his little sensory processing system is so that he, you're just kind of hanging out beside him or behind him or even try to get in front of him and he doesn't know you're there. You're not even on the radar. So it could be because of that. So, you know, with other kids who routinely move on, and it may not be in an aggressive way that we talked about with our, our little friends to have big reactions and big tantrums, it, it may not be like that. It just may be a kid who quietly moves on her way to the next thing anytime you try to stay included. So when you're getting that kind of kid, too, you know, I can't play with toys yet. I've got to back it on up. I need to be at that social game level so that she learns to pay attention to me, so that she learns to interact with me and connect with me. And so when you're seeing that, even if you felt like, Laura, I have been at this social game level for three weeks or three months or however long you've been there, it may take a while. You may have to stay there a little bit longer. And if you're getting these reactions 
you know you're just not quite ready to move on yet. Now, that's a little bit frustrating to parents because sometimes parents will say, especially if you haven't done a lot of talking about what you're doing and you haven't said, hey, we're not going to use toys yet. I'm going to be the toy. I'm going to help her learn to like other people and include other people and consistently connect with other people. And you tell mom, listen, I'm doing this. This is the, the point of our therapy because this is where we start with every kid. And until she learns to include other people and that she needs other people, she doesn't have a reason to communicate with anybody. And that's that's why we're focused on this. If you skipped having those talks with parents or even if you've had them and for some reason they haven't heard you yet, they haven't really understood you yet, you might get some pushback. And parents may say, you know, why aren't you using some other things with her? You know, maybe you want to try something else. It doesn't seem to be working. You know, so be sure that you're really communicating every single session, you know, over and over again why these social games are important and why you feel like you can't really move on yet and why you are still a toy rather than using other toys. Or or sometimes the parent might say something like, well, I, I like that you're really trying to play with her, but when are you going to teach her something? You know, and she doesn't, mom doesn't really understand that that's where you start with communication. It's just that back and forth, that reciprocity piece where kids learn to include you and be with you and do her part in the game and watch for your reaction and, and to initiate you playing with her. You know, she just, mom may not understand that yet. So, again, you're going to have to get really good at talking about all of these things, explaining these things to mom so that she understands, you know, hey, I, I can't introduce anything else yet. Sometimes parents really expect therapy to look more like school. They think that you should be doing flashcards and now with our iPads and our fancy phones and stuff and that, you, you know, you should be doing educational apps and you should be really, quote, unquote, teaching. And so you just have to explain all the reasons why it's going to look a lot different than what a parent expected. And so you've got to be able to talk about that and say we're not re- really ready to introduce toys yet because she doesn't include other people when she has something else to pay attention to or she checks out or she moves on or whatever her child, mom's child happens to be doing, you've got to say that so mom understands why it's so critical that you get that interaction and that connection going one-on-one. And again, guys, you can't stop with us as therapists. We need to be helping moms and dads play these same kinds of games too and understanding why you can't just play patty cake or or ring around the rosy or so big or, you know, whatever games you're playing, you can't just do that one time a week during your therapy time. And mom and dad don't need to be, you know, the whole, uh, this is this is my therapy game, but I don't do any kind of other stuff the rest of the week that remotely resembles this. You've got to have moms and dads play too. And a lot of times that's a little bit hard for therapists because you're thinking, okay, now I've gotten this kid to do it with me, but now I'm messing up if I have to bring mom in and have her do it. Please don't feel like that, okay? Or if you feel like that's going to really embarrass mom, I don't think mom will participate. I think she'll be uncomfortable. I get that, and I'm I'm not into embarrassing parents or having them do anything that feels uncomfortable or totally out of their realm. But we have to be sure that parents are. Oh, excuse me, I have to sneeze. Okay, it passed. We have to be sure that parents really do get why we're playing these games and that they're getting that same level of interaction too. 
The other thing that I tell parents when we're talking about social games is that I want to make sure their child can learn a little routine and remember it and that that may not be a strength for them yet. They may be better at visual information like kids who get stuck on letters and numbers and who only like books and stuff, but they really leave out other people and ignore other people. So I tell moms and dads, listen, I need to know that she can learn in this way. I want to see that she's really recognizing and remembering this game and so that she lights up. And so week to week, you know, that's an important part of learning that, that she reacts and we can tell she remembers. And so that's another thing you say. That's also another red flag that will tell you you're not really ready to move on to include toys yet. It's when you don't have any indication that a child is remembering the game or recognizing the game, learning the game from week to week. So if you're not getting any smiles or any, you know, little little change of, uh, you know, their faces light up or you can see their eyes um, you know, get a little bigger, like, hey, I know this game. I remember this from last time. If you're not seeing any of that, or especially if you're not getting a child who's learned to do his little part of a social game, and remember, we're not going to review that. We we talked about that in show 229, show 230. Go back and listen. But if a child isn't listening or isn't doing any of those kinds of participatory parts in a game, any, any little gesture, say, if he still hasn't learned, give me five. He hasn't learned that when you hold your hand up, he hits your hand. He still hasn't learned that he's got to hold your hands for ringing around the raises and you fall down at the end. If you see no indication that he's really learning, you can't move on to use toys yet, okay? You've got to really make it simpler and time we introduce another piece or another part uh, to what we want a child to do with a play routine, that makes it more likely that he won't learn it. It, it, it makes it less likely that he's going to get that, that true understanding and that true participation over time. So you have to, again, make it simpler so there are only two things going on there, you and him. So that's why we would do it and that's how to explain it. Um, another thing that lets me know that a child isn't ready to move on to include toys, what we're doing together in therapy, would be a kid that I never see do any little visual check-ins or visual tracking of from across the room. So if I have a child, let's say he's coming to see me in my office, and mom leads him in, and he, he might you know, hold mom's hand and he gets to the door and he doesn't look at me as they're coming through the door, even though I'm saying, you know, hi, Brandon, Brandon, hi, I'm so excited you're here, Brandon. Never really looks at me. Let's say he runs straight back to the treatment room and he goes to the train table and I'm still there talking with mom, asking her, hey, how'd it go? And getting kind of the weekly report and, and figuring out what worked during the week and what didn't work so we can address it in today's session. And then let's say that I sit down at the train table with him and that I start rolling my train and I crash into his and I do everything I can to be included, but he's not really checking on me. He's still kind of doing his own thing. That lets you know you can't really include those toys. This would be, too, a kid that you are working so darn hard, even in the middle of your social games, to keep them with you or to keep, you know, you might have to break out into a sweat before they decide they like it. You know, it might be 10, 20 minutes of 
Herculean effort on your part. You know, you were just given, you were working 100% for 20 minutes before you get a decent social response, which would be smile, eye contact, laughter, whatever that might be for any particular child. You still have to work pretty darn hard to get it. Those kids really aren't ready to include toys yet. They're still to focus 100% of their attention on the thing before they include you. Let me back up and say one more thing about eye contact. A child doesn't necessarily have to stare into your eye the whole time you're playing before you're going to give them credit for eye contact. And eye contact for lots of our little friends on the spectrum can be so a lot of those kids really might get any better from across the room. And so if you're not getting even that kind of visual tracking or visual attention or you never notice him catch your eye, that would be a kid that you still need to double down on with social games and see what you can get going to get that that interaction piece a little bit stronger. All right, so let's use those same little signs and look at, at the positive things that we could see. Things that a child would be doing that would let you, let you know that you can move on and start to include some simple toys during play and see what you'll get then. It would be kids who, you know, that start to look at you. Kids who, again, you all of a sudden you look down at them and they're looking at you and you think, my goodness, I didn't do one thing. I didn't have to do one thing to try to get him to notice me today. He just, he did it. He included me. This certainly would include a toddler who's bringing you some toys who, let's say, um, you're sitting there and you're, you're doing a home visit and you're talking with mom and she's been playing with her um, car and she brings it to show you or a book or anything. Maybe she's been holding on to little Kelly dolls, those little teeny baby Barbies as I call them. Maybe she brings that over to you. Or she might bring over a drumstick or a coat hanger or any odd little thing that's in her environment, a key, key, a set of keys she found. Anytime a child starts to include you with that initiation piece, you know, aha, I've got her where I want her. She wants me to play with her. She wants me to do this. So you know, okay, she she thinks I'm, I'm cool. She thinks I'm part of this. She knows to include me here. So that would be a big indication that you can start including some games. Other things, the, the, the positive implication, the positive side of what we've already talked about, you're working less hard during these social games, and he's staying with you with less effort. One big thing that I use is look at the number of games that I've been able to firmly establish in a kid's repertoire with me. Usually if I can get a kid, and I've said this before on a previous show, if I can get a kid to take 10 different games with me and for the kid to recognize it and remember it and, again, more importantly, do his part, but if I have him on my legs and we're playing a bouncing game, he reaches for my hands as part of that game. Or let's say he wants to jump off the couch into my arms as part of a jumping game, that he goes over to the couch and he really looks for me, like, come on, get over here, lady. Or let's say that he's by the couch and he kind of leans on me and leans on the couch or maybe sticks his hand out to grab my hand that, you know, like, come on, turn around. Or a kid that maybe we've played rocket ship and he starts pushing me down a little bit like he wants to get on my legs to do the rocket ship part. 
anytime, I mean, that's part, that's his part. That's what a child's doing. He's initiating. So when you see that you have a kid there and they, they play patty cake with you and they give you five and they, all the other little games, even maybe even little kind of weird games that you've invented that maybe started out as accidents, but you thought, gosh, he liked that. I'm going to do that again. And you've turned that into your own original game. When a child knows about ten of those and can play them and, and, is consistent with his responses with me and he's including me more. That's when I start to think, well, I'm try some of these other early play things and see if he can move on. Now, let me say, I have had children that I've, I've moved on to toys and I think, man, hey, I'm not getting nearly the social connection that I was when I didn't have a toy. And so I might back up a little bit and my session then might look like I'm playing you know, our 10 established games, and then I'm going to teach a new game or two and intersperse between all those things. I'll add uh, a play, play with a toy, the kinds of things that we're going to talk about in just a minute. And I'm not getting as much, so then I pull back a little bit and might do two or three of our little games and then try to add another toy. So that might be how our sessions look for weeks or, you know, maybe even a couple of months where we're still kind of going back and forth between that, those games that the child knows and learns and remembers to new games that I'm trying to teach him. I mean, you might get to the point where you have a lot of little routines. I remember one little guy that, and this was many, many years ago, but his mom felt like he really excelled at those social games and didn't do it well with toys and things. And so we sat down and we were getting ready for his transition meeting with um, the early intervention program to move on to school, and we sat down and we figured out he had over 30 of those little routines that he did. That was incredible. Now, I knew we had a lot, but I didn't know that we had 30. I mean, that tells you right there, I should have been keeping better data on that. We had to, we had to really write those down so that we could document that he had made progress, and we could, we could talk about the kinds of wonderful things we were seeing with him within this realm of social skill development that the the evaluators would never have seen if they had just played with him with toys. And so that was important. So be sure that you don't give up at just 10 games, that you don't stop there. And again, some children won't need that many. They'll just need four or five that you've learned with them and you feel like, gosh, he's ready to move on. He's doing better. This is, this is not as big of a hurdle as I thought it would be. And use your own judgment on that. But there could be kids, again, like my little friend Zachary, that we had to work hard on this. But honestly, he learned more and did more for me. And and I could see that cognitive growth in, in those little games much better than I did in play with toys. He had some other things. He had some fine motor issues. Probably had some vision issues, too, looking back on him. But again, I never would have known those those relative strengths had we not spent so much time with the social game development. All right, so what do you do when you've decided, gosh, she's, this little friend of mine is looking at me more. She's including me more. She's staying with me. She has all these little cute little things that she does in the middle of these games. Now she's sort of starting to show me some things. What are some things you can do that you can move to so that you don't lose that engagement that you worked so hard to get? How can you still make sure that you're included and then move on to toys? First of all, you would never include a toy or an activity that causes the child to go into um, self-stimulatory behavior. Now, if you're a therapist, you know exactly what I mean by this. It could be 
a visual self-stimulatory kind of trigger where the child maybe sees an object that spins and then she might just have those little radar-locked eyes so that she's totally focused on that. You might see some other kinds of stems like some hand flapping or maybe up on their toes when they're looking at it or again if they're visual kids they might put their face right beside what's causing that if it's a game on the iPad or if it's a spinny light toy or a DVD player anything like that when you have a toy or, or the wheels on Thomas gosh how could I forget that where the kids have to really watch they're down on the floor laying on their bellies and totally engrossed in Thomas's wheel spinning as as they roll in just back and forth about two inches from their eyes. You've seen that before, right? <laughs> those kinds of things and activities, those toys, objects, activities, those are not going to be things we would include as part of our early play with objects because we're going to have to compete for attention with those things. And so if, if it's we need to use things that are fun and we need to use things that are motivating, but if it's to the point that the child engages in self-stimulatory or stereotypic or, you know, those would be the professional terms. Anything, again, that you can't get him to include you, you don't want to use that activity or that, that toy because you're going to have to work too hard to keep yourself included, so don't do that. Let me just digress a little bit here. Um, last week, I have started my participation in the uh, process of standardizing a brand test that's coming out for infants ages 2 to 12 months, and it measures all of the things that we see happen before words, so all of those pre-communicative behaviors, and you know, whether it's pragmatics or receptive language or you know, all this great interaction stuff that we talk about every, every single week on the show. I love this test. It's, gonna, it's the ICBS. Don't ask me what that stands for. It's something with infant at the beginning. But I'm working with Dr. Cynthia Crest from University of Nebraska at Lincoln. And she came, she's developed this wonderful test, and I think it's going to be absolutely fabulous. So she came last week to my office and did some training with me with that and with my friend who's helping me. Dana, I know you listen to the show. Thank you very much. And so she's helping me and trained Dana and me with how to, how to do this, how to use the test, assess these infants, these fun, fun babies, and walks me through that whole process. And then as a, a little adjunct activity, she offered a workshop. So I invited other early intervention providers, you know, some other speech-language pathologists and DIs and OTs to come to my office, and she did this uh, two-hour workshop with uh, important considerations in developing pragmatic skills. So great workshop. We had a lot of fun. She didn't use the word self-stimulatory during this as we were talking about it. She said, she and she was so cute how she said it. She she would say, let's say that you have a little friend and she likes whatever you're doing. She likes your lights on your toy. You know, she's really grieving on it. And I thought the whole grieving on it, I thought that was a really cute way of describing stimulation can look like and how kids get so engrossed with that. So, again, I kind of digress, but I thought that was a great way to say it, and I love it, and I'm going to use that description forever. So when you have a toy that causes the kid to really groove on it and not be able to include you, you're not going to want to use that for these early play routines. 
The other kind of guideline that you would use here for what to choose would be a toy that you can easily make yourself a part of. And for me, that usually means visually. So I've got to have something where I can make myself, make a kid have to see me as part of it. And also something that a child needs me to do as a part of the game. So if there's a toy that a child can do or an activity that he can do completely on his own, forget it. That would be the kind of game that would make him want to leave me out. And so that I would never want to do anything with kids like this that I'm transitioning from social games to kind of early play with toys. So that, that would be how I think about it. If I'm standing at my, in my toy closet thinking, what toys am I going to pull out for this kid today? Or if you're doing home visits and you still get your toy bag, things that you would be pulling out of your trunk or your back seat or wherever you, you know, in your bags if you're looking for, do I need to take this? That's what you need to do. If a kid can use the toy alone, forget it don't want to take that in. If you are rummaging through the house, you don't take your toy bag anymore. You're looking through a kid's toys and you're trying to decide what can we play with together here. If he can do it by himself and he doesn't need you for it, forget it. That's not a toy that you would want to use with this child from a therapeutic perspective where you're working on him, including you. you. You almost guarantee that he won't be successful. I saw one time with a little friend of mine that I had worked so hard with who was transitioning to the public, and she, of course, was still working on the social interaction piece. And her therapist wrote a goal. I don't know exactly how it was worded on the IP. This is what the mom was telling me. But the therapist wanted her to include her during games that she played on the iPad. That was, that may, let me just say, and don't anybody send me nasty grams for how I'm going to say this. I don't want to, I don't want to get any negative email on this, okay? But that was a ridiculous material for this therapist to think that she could achieve with this child, especially at the beginning when they're establishing a relationship, because this little girl did anything that she could to avoid people, particularly when she was engrossed in a game on the iPad. So why would you why would you start there? So really think about your materials. We want to do everything we can to ensure success, especially at the beginning. So you would never pick something like that that's so engrossing and so you're so easily be you know, it's so easy to left out of. So just be really careful about that. So all right, so what are some things that you can do? If you think back to Dr. Greenspan's work with floor time he would say, whatever the child is paying attention to, you're going to change it in a little way so that he includes you with it. So let's say you have a child who is drinking his bottle, playing there together. Let's say there's a slide in the room that you're playing in and you're right beside the slide. And he kind of, now don't jerk the bottle out of his mouth, but when he kind of has set the bottle down or has it down or isn't going to be too mad at you, you might take the box and roll it down the slide. Why would that be fun? Well, first of all, he's paying attention to the bottle. He's probably going to include you. If he's not really, really thirsty or hungry, he may not get too mad at you. And that's just novel enough to make him want to include you. So you would take an object that he's already kind kind of paying attention to and do something with it in a way that would make it engaging and usually kind of fun and make it do it. And usually I'm looking for something that has a pretty big visual payoff. So 
the bottle rolling down the side would be a good thing. Let's say that he's playing with, maybe not Thomas, because that might cause too much of a reaction, but there's a car right there. What could you do with that? You could put your hand over it, maybe. Or maybe you could slide it in the leg of his pants or maybe drop it down his shirt. You've taken the toy to made yourself a part of that, and you've done it, again, in a fun way. Now, if this is a kid who isn't crazy about you touching him, you might not want to use these things yet. These are just ideas to kind of get you started. So whatever the child is paying attention to, you you take that object and you, you make it interesting and you make yourself a part of that. Usually a kid would have to you know, would need your help to get the car out of his shirt or out of your leg, out of his pants and his leg, and you're going to be there to kind of do that with him. Those are great, great, great ways to do it. Um, anything that you could maybe, um, again, stack, or let's say you're playing with the train tracks or something, you might take part of the track off or put your hand right there, block it in some way so that a child has to include you in that play to get what he wants. So you're thinking about that. You're introducing those little, um, you, you know, your own box where you're making yourself a part of that play. But, again, not in a mean way and not in a way that it's going to cause a child to stress, but just enough so that it's there, including you. Other things you can do, you can introduce um, a, the sensory kinds of things that we've talked about, but maybe a new little object with that kids who like to swing outside on a swing, they need you. Rarely can a child at two make the swing go himself. So that would be an activity you could do together. Swinging in a blanket. The blanket has become your other object there. You can play peekaboo with it. You can pull in like a train. All kinds of things you could do. The swinging game that we've talked about, you know, you'll make that repetitive. You'll put a little verbal routine with it, but you're included in that game because you, you're what's going to make that fun. So that would be something you could do. Uh, let's say that a child likes to climb through a tunnel in a preschool classroom or a tent. Make yourself part of that little game there where you are somehow obstructing or closing the tent or the tunnel and, he's, and then open it back up with a real big pop. He's going to want you to do that again. He needs you to do that again. So that would be another fun thing you could do. Uh, spinning in a chair, you know, those office chairs that we have and sometimes families have in their homes. You could certainly come up with a little routine, a little game there. And, again, it's not so much of a toy, but you're introducing another object. And so for kids that I disappear when we bring out something that looks like a toy, these are the things I do, these kind of environmental, um, whether you're doing like, the example that I gave you with the bottle or the ball, you know, whatever object they have that you're using, or things like the chair or the blanket or maybe a laundry basket. Mom's folding laundry and you could put them in it and do your row, row, your boat game in there or, you know, move them from side to side like, um, you know, like there's a monster or whatever the kid might like, whatever you can come up with. Anything that would let you use something in that environment Still make it game-like and still include you in it. So that, that's the premise there where you're just introducing one more, one more part of your routine, but he still pays attention to you. If you think that you can move on up to toys, let me give you some of my favorites here. 
Bubbles are a good one, and we already talked about that a little bit with kids who might get a little bit mad if you're holding the stick. With those kinds of kids, I use a little container that has three sticks, and it, it's a no-spill container, and you can find those this time of year everywhere. I have an old one, an old Dora set that I've used for a long time. I have some other ones, too. Um, but anything where he can have a stick and I can have a stick. Now, sometimes the child is mad because they want to hold all the sticks. Just do your best to retain control of at least one of those bubble wands <laughs> so that you still have a way to blow bubbles. But those kinds of kids, usually after they get the sticks, um, sometimes it's just getting them. And then they're okay to be able to insert them one by one back in the slot. So just use your judgment there and try to figure out. Don't get into power struggles, though. If you find yourself really, really yourself getting upset that the child won't include you, then you better just go back to those social games that we talked about. Because if, if you're frustrated, you know the child is frustrated, too. So be sure that you're watching your own emotional state as you're playing together. And do everything you can to kind of keep it fun. Balloons are something, too, that a child can't usually do without your help. Um, a lot of people use those balloon pumpers, which is a lot of fun, because then kids surely can't pump the air and get the balloon to blow up. They absolutely have you and need you as a part of that. So that's a fun thing. I still blow up balloons. It kind of gets gross, though, when I've blown the balloon and the kid wants to blow the balloon. I always have another balloon there so I can bring out a germ-free balloon and start over again with that. And I don't really tie balloons and um, make them where we are hitting them back and forth until I know that I'm going to have a child's attention and they stay with me. I would just blow it up and, again, do a verbal routine with that, whether you're doing, oh, that's blow, one, two, three, blow, and you're blowing there and they're watching the balloon get bigger. And then let it go so that the balloon flies all the way across the room, and then do a lot of pointing to see if the child will follow your point. That's a huge part of joint attention, so that you're going to get the balloon. And I, if I think the kid is going to want to blow it himself and get mad if I, if I, uh, and not want to give it to me, I immediately try to make sure that I blow it to a place that I can get to before him, and I run over and get it, and we start the routine again. Sometimes when a kid gets a balloon, they don't want you to get it back. And then again, if it becomes too much of a fight, you know this kid is not ready for toys yet. But that's a nice one to do because the kid will not be able to blow the balloon either with his mouth or with your little pumper toy without some help from you. Wind-up toys are another great way to help a child move to using toys. He, children can rarely use that little motion with their pincer grasp of being able to wind that toy with their finger. So they have to have you. And that's a great way to teach, give it to me, or, or, or uh, let me help you or anything. And you can do a ton of modeling with your outstretched hand and then taking your free hand as the child holds the toy and guiding it into your hand so that you can do it again. And I've taught a ton of kids to understand the request, give it to me with wind-up toys because they know they need your help. They figure out I cannot do this by myself. And, again, you have to keep that moving pretty fast so that a kid doesn't just lose interest and you've got to continually reassert yourself into his attention 
you know, his visual field, so that he's really paying attention and trying to get the wind-up chore to work. You know, if he's standing up, man, I'm going to be sitting right in front of him and pop my little head up beside him and have my hand out and say, I will help you. Give it to me. Give it to me. And then, again, you take your free hand and you help him get it in your hand. You wind it up really fast and you start over again. You don't want to take forever in the day between these turns so that he loses interest or he decides way too hard for me or she's way demanding or too fussy or, you know, whatever a kid might think about you. You want to keep that moving pretty fast and wind-up toys are a great way to do it. Bowling sets, those little plastic bowling pins, kids, do they love – well, rarely do they love rolling it with the ball at first. Usually they love it when you are stacking the pins up and then they get to kick them or hit them down. But some therapists and parents get all weird about that and they, they're mad that the kid won't bowl with the ball or they won't let you get all ten pins set up. Who cares? Even if you're just able to get a pin or two set up, and again, you're doing your verbal routines there where you're counting or you're saying something like up, 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 and then, you know, do your one, two, three kick and let them kick those bowling pins down again. That's a great way to stay included. That's that's one of my go-to games that I use all the time. Flashlights are a fun early object like this because, again, rarely can one or two or three-year-old get it on by himself. He needs you there. So a lot of times this is kids will learn to hand toy to you for assistance or we'll learn that they need you to do it. A lot of times kids now take your hand and really try to manipulate your hand and not really realize there's the face attached to your arm. You want to see that social connection start. So you may do something there where you're, you know, saying something in a really enticing way like light on, light on, light on. So that they have to pay attention to you or any little sound that you know that they like if you're doing a little you know, whoosh or any, any kind of little place down there. You might have to do something to kind of interject so that they still pay attention to you. And, and again, use your verbal routine so that you're coming up with these fun little things that you say so that they can anticipate that they're about to turn the light on and they're looking at you, you know, ready for it to start. There's a real fun toy, and I, it was um, on recall for a long time, but I've seen it back. I don't know if this is the name of it anymore, but it's a sky dancer toy, and basically it's a little fairy kind of toy that flies. I have a Superman version, so there's a boy version now. But any little toy that would, uh, when you pull it, it's going to fly off or, or, you know, somehow leave the launcher so that the child has to go get it, and then he has to bring it back to you to do it again. Those kinds of toys are fun. Now, I understand the whole safety thing. You know, don't use it where you're going to put a kid's eye out or anything, but those toys are a lot of fun and can create a lot of visual attention so that the child is tracking it. And then again, remember, he's got to bring it back to you. Now, I don't sit in one spot and say, you know, you must bring it back to me before we play this again. Come on, don't do that. Run over and get it and help the kid get it back on the launcher. And then over time, the purpose of that game will be that he learns that he's got to bring it back to you clear across the room. But don't do that at the beginning. Make yourself really available and really included. And remember, you're still part of this. You're still the toy. You're still making yourself really, really, really fun as you're playing this together, but he's learning to include you in this play and that he needs you, and that's what communication is all about. 
Um, other kinds of launcher toys that I call them, Hot Wheels. Uh, Hot Wheels has a little motorcycle launcher kit. I bought it forever. It's about 10 bucks. A lot of times grocery stores or places like Meyer, um, Kroger, those kinds of places will these too. And, again, it's a pretty cheap toy. I think you can get it on Amazon. I think it's, it's some kind of Hot Wheels motorcycle. So look at that. A kid can never do it by himself. So, um a little lever that you have to pull and you have to get the Hot Wheels motorcycles in just the right way, but a great, great, great toy. Rocket launchers, even from the birthday party aisle, you have to load it on some kind of air pumper. Great toy for this kind of kid who needs you and who has to include you in this kind of play or the toy is no fun. And the last toy I want to mention would be the elephant game. That's a little game that shoots butterflies at the elephant's trunk. That's a fun one. Kids learn that they have to get it back in the game and hardly do the little button by themselves. And, again, they know they have to include you, especially if you're playing with groups of children and need a kid to stay with you as you're doing that. That's a fun thing together. Remember your guidelines here when you're moving children from social games to toys, you always want to include only act where you must be a part of, activities where you can easily stay in that child's visual field. You do want a visual component for that. So even if you're blowing bubbles, you know, you're blowing the bubbles up so they fall down on you. You know, anything that you can do, again, to stay there and stay with the child and and be a part of and be required so that I'll be able to complete um, the play activity, and I can't do it without you. So be sure that you're using that. Talked a little bit about using some sabotage where you're putting yourself in the way or where you might keep part of the toy so that he has to have you um, to do the next part. Let me also say that you're not going to insist on tons of talking even now with these kinds of because your primary focus is still on that connection piece and making sure that he's engaged with you and that he stays with you and that he's looking at you and having a blast and that you are enjoying that toy together. So that's how you move kids to that next little piece. I welcome your um, questions, your comments, your responses to this and any podcast topic, you can always send me an email at laura at teachmetotalk.com or leave me a comment on Twitter or my Facebook page. If you need some more help knowing how to be the toy and how to teach kids how to play with you, let me direct you to a great resource from teachmetotalk.com. It's my book, Teach Me to Play With You, and I'll post that link uh, with the article or with the little post today about the podcast so you can get some information about that book. I'm glad to be back with you. Hope I've given you some new ideas today, and I can't wait to hear what we're going to talk about next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great week. Bye-bye.